0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm an associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. Well, I'm back. I'm back here in the studio at Plenary Session. I'm back in the new HQ. We've moved from the old office, where there was a speaker in the ceiling that was playing a noise-canceling sound that caused some static disruption, to a new office, one floor down, where it is, I hope, very quiet. So we're able to record in peace here, in the new Plenary Session HQ. And we're going to have some very interesting things for you in the new year. On this week's episode, we're going to have a discussion of the use of trastuzumab in latter lines of therapy for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. We're going to take a listener question on the Kaplan-Meier Curve, and we're going to talk a little bit about Patreon, so stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenary session at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First, Patreon. Over the last couple of weeks while I was out, I noticed on Twitter that there were some popular commenters who asked, what is your favorite podcast? And I saw a lot of people saying Plenary Session, which warmed my heart. It made me feel good inside to hear that somebody actually likes Plenary Session podcast. That was a good feeling. But what wasn't a good feeling was knowing that those people were not active supporters on Patreon. Listen, folks, this isn't NPR. We don't have monthly drives that you can ignore, counting on the altruism of your fellow NPR listeners. We are a small operation. We are operating on a shoestring budget, and we need your support. So, if you actually like this podcast, you got to go to patreon.com and you got to support us. And you're going to get something in return. You're going to get slides from lectures that I give and record on this podcast, lectures that I'm giving usually. In a classroom setting, you're going to get the slides for that. And we have a couple bonus episodes coming out soon where you might want the slides. But if you really like this podcast, you should know. You got to support it because we're going to need that support for reasons I will tell you more about on future episodes. Next. I want to discuss a very intriguing tweet that was posted on December 14th by Tatiana Prowell, who's one of the reviewers in the Breast Oncology Division of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and a Twitter account I enjoy following. Dr. Powell wrote, is it true that NICE and NHSE don't cover trastuzumab as third-line therapy for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer? Why on earth not? Tagging my regulatory colleagues across the water at EMA News. Hashtag BCSM, which is a breast cancer patient advocacy and social media hashtag. So, one answer from Timothy Gilligan, which actually is... probably the right answer. Uh, Maybe because it's so expensive. Perhaps we should tag pharma and suggest lowering the price. Nice looks at cost effectiveness. A foreign concept in U.S. healthcare. Though I don't know the details in this instance. But he's probably actually, that's probably actually the reason. That in Europe, even though regulators such as the EMA approve a drug for marketing authorization, which in this case is probably trastuzumab approved very broadly based on a label of HER2-positive breast cancer. Although... It really was supported initially, of course, in frontline metastatic breast cancer until progression and not really third line metastatic breast cancer, although the label has been broad for many years. Um, There is an additional step in Europe, which is not just regulatory approval, which is the question of cost effectiveness. So NICE, the National Institutes of Clinical Effectiveness, ask whether or not trastuzumab is cost effective. And that depends on how you use trastuzumab. Trastuzumab may well be and probably is cost effective in the frontline of metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer based on the very old paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, maybe now almost 20 years old. Um, now just under 20 years old by Slayman and colleagues. And it is it is the case that they cover the drug for that purpose. But a drug may be cost-effective for one purpose, but not cost-effective for another purpose. And when we start to talk about the third and fourth line therapies of breast cancer, um, we don't always have well-done randomized control trials that support trastuzumab, although we have a consensus in the United States where we don't play by cost-effectiveness rules that this is an agent you want to keep on. And there's a number of papers that that sort of circumstantially make that case, that like rituximab, trastuzumab, continues to exert uh, a beneficial effect even upon progression, and therefore should be continued, at least some HER2-directed therapy um, in subsequent lines of therapy. But the magnitude of that benefit is almost surely very, very small. And therefore, the National Institutes of Clinical Effectives, knowing the price of the drug, the median duration of treatment, the cumulative cost of the drug, and the upper bound putative benefit have probably found that it exceeds thresholds of cost effectiveness, that it is not the best use of a dollar. Now, there might be some people who would say, I don't like that. I mean, I want therapies that are effective irrespective of the price. Well, unfortunately, that is not a good position to take. And here's why. All of us, when we're born, we don't know what malady will affect us in our lives. We could have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, or we could unfortunately develop cancer. Um, and we don't know what cancer we're going to get. We might get T-cell lymphoma. We might get metastatic breast cancer. And the other thing to note is we all live in societies that must ration healthcare. There is no society with infinite resources. We all ration differently. We ration healthcare. Some of the ways in which we ration differently is in the United States, of course, we decide to spend a larger chunk on healthcare, i.e. hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, um, uh hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, nursing homes, doctors, those sorts of things, we spend much less on social services like having uh, adequate care for young children, providing school-aged children with good nutrition in school and et cetera, et cetera, um, poor infrastructure that may affect society, uh, uh, lax rules for pollution, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's just a number of ways in which we make the trade-off between where the money is spent and other sectors that ostensibly, have something to do with health, including socioeconomic status. Um, These are choices that are often opaque, but no matter what society you live in, there is a limit to how much money will be spent on health care. Then the next question is, well, how do you ration that care? In the United States, we do ration care. We ration it all the time, and we ration it based on a very simple formula, which is, can you afford it? Do you have access to insurance? Are you a documented legal alien? Are you a U.S. citizen? Do you have access to insurance? Are you employed? Um, In which case, you're going to get health care. Or are you somebody on the fringes of society, in which case, you're really out of luck and you may not be able to get even very basic things like uh, blood pressure pills. Um, Good luck to you. Uh, I I believe such a way of rationing is very cruel. Um, It's a way where um, we may be covering one person's erlotinib and pancreatic cancer, a drug with a Ten-day survival benefit, and we're not covering in exchange a hundred people's antihypertensive therapy, um, which would add years, decades of life back to society. We're making a choice with our dollar to give that dollar to add ten days when we could take that dollar and add ten years. That's a that's a choice we're making. We don't see it as that choice. In the UK, they make this quite formal. They decide that for every dollar we're going to spend on healthcare, we want to do it in a way that maximally improves outcomes for people in our society. And what that might mean is you might not cover trastuzumab in third or fourth line metastatic breast cancer, but in exchange, you might be providing better prenatal care for many more women. You might be controlling blood pressure much better in thousands of people, women and men. And as a result, you might have better population mortality statistics. And in fact, they do have better life expectancy in the UK than in the United States. And they spend less per capita on health care, which allows them to have more of a budget to invest in social services and safety net services, which through those payments may actually propagate and promulgate health. So anyway, the short answer to the question is, Is it true that they don't cover that? I haven't verified the fact, but I suspect that probably is the case because, one, there is not really a clear, well-done, randomized control that supports it in that setting. Two, uh, even if there were and one were to extrapolate based on some quasi-experimental and retrospective data, um, one would likely conclude it has a modest to marginal benefit at a very high price, and it's unlikely to be cost effective. So I think Tim Gilligan is probably right that the UK is deciding actively to make that rationing choice. um, And they're doing so because that's actually what's best for people in the UK. And if we all understand we enter life with a with a veil of ignorance, we don't know what will befall us. It's actually better to choose 9 out of 10 times to be in the UK than in the United States, a nation that will ration in a uh, capricious, arbitrary, unfair, cruel uh, way. So anyway, all nations ration, they're rationing in a logical way. That's probably what they're doing. But what I really find interesting about this tweet is that it is ironic. It's ironic because let's imagine a world where cost is not an issue. And it is not an issue in the United States. We're going to cover all the drugs. By law, whether they improve survival one minute, we're going to pay for that drug. $100,000 drug improves survival one minute. It's getting covered. That's easy. So let's just imagine we live in that world. We do live in that world. That's the United States right now in cancer medicine. What I think is interesting is that Dr. Prowl, um, who's an FDA reviewer in breast oncology, is saying that we know these drugs continue to exert benefit. We, pro- we believe that's the case. That is our standard of care, even in subsequent lines of therapy. They need HER2-directed therapy. And the UK is providing therapy that would probably not be the same as the therapy we would be providing in Dana-Farber, Johns Hopkins, OHSU, you name it. It's probably not the same care. And for those individual people, there may be some decrement in survival. And the reason I find it ironic is because this is a situation in which, you know, in which her complaint will fall on deaf ears. Of course, she's directed it at the EMA. The EMA has no power or authority over UK coverage decisions. Um, And NICE, obviously, is following their own protocol, so it's not going to change anything. But the reason I find it so interesting is that Dr. Powell is saying that my standard is it is unacceptable not to give trastuzumab in third and fourth lines of therapy because I believe it exerts some beneficial effect and the UK saying, well, we don't think it's cost effective, but she's saying that I believe it exerts some beneficial effect. Why on earth are you not giving it? And the reason I find it ironic is that if you believe that, which I believe she does, and I believe most people in the United States believe that, why are you not enforcing it when you can? See, you can't tell the EMA what to tell NICE because the EMA has no authority over NICE. You can't tell NICE what to do. They're a different nation. They have their own protocols. They're following those protocols, which are actually logical and make sense. But what you can do in the FDA is regulate clinical trials used for drug approval. That's within your authority. And there was a trial that's just like this that fits the bill. And that's the Cleopatra study. Cleopatra, of course, randomized trial pertuzumab plus trastuzumab and taxane versus trastuzumab and taxane. initially published by Baselga and colleagues in New England Journal of Medicine in which the trial had a very long progression-free survival benefit, an impressive PFS. Um, and later... And an update in 2015 by Sandra Swain and colleagues, it was shown to have an overall survival benefit, something like 16-month median OS benefit from 40-some-odd months to 60 months, if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I've looked at that paper. But it's a real OS benefit when you add pertuzumab. Now, there's one bit of interesting history about this drug, which is that at the time pertuzumab-trastuzumab-taxane is tested against trastuzumab-taxane, Dr. Powell's sentiment is true in the United States that upon progression you should get HER2-directed therapy. But of course, as a multi-center global registration study, this Cleopatra trial was conducted in settings where that might not be the standard of care there. And thus, the FDA faces a dilemma. Should the FDA demand that this trial have post-protocol care that mirrors the US standard, a standard that Dr. Prowl has stated, why on earth wouldn't you give that she clearly believes is beneficial and it would be exasperated not to give? Should the FDA mandate that well, they do have, of course, the legal authority to mandate that. They can dismiss data that comes from nations that don't have standard of care meeting the U.S. standard, and yet they accept the Cleopatra study that led to regulatory approval. Notably, in the Cleopatra study, 32% of women who progressed on either arm did not receive any further trastuzumab or HER2-directed therapy. 68% did, but 32% didn't. So when Dr. Powell is saying, why on earth is nice not paying for trastuzumab in the third line, I believe i'm paraphrasing i believe that that's effective and that it would be ludicrous not to give it when the fda has data for the regulatory approval of pertuzumab and 32 percent of women aren't getting it they don't say a peep they don't do anything about it and that's actually the situation where they could make some difference and actually make some changes so the irony is you know she's appealing in this particular case to ema why is this happening but when you could have stopped it in your backyard you allowed it to happen Now, there's an additional bit of history here. Of course, the Cleopatra study was approved immediately. There was no oncology drug advisory meeting. There's not much controversy there. Big PFS benefit, big OS benefit seemed very persuasive. But pertuzumab was later pursued in the neoadjuvant setting. And that was based on PATH-CR, which is very, very controversial. And the paper by Cortazar and colleagues that proved in figure six of the paper that PATH-CR had very low trial level validity, very low predictive power for subsequent DFS or OS. It was there's no dispute, an unproven, unvalidated, not a surrogate. It is not a surrogate endpoint. And yet the FDA used it as a novel surrogate for the accelerated approval of pertuzumab in the new adjuvant setting. And that did go to an ODAC. And in that ODAC, Dr. baselgo was defending that this is a really good trial. And one of his arguments was, we know that pertuzumab is really active in the metastatic setting. In fact, in Cleopatra, there was a 16 month survival benefit, to which one of the ODAC members, who was a very savvy gentleman, very smart, pointed out that you didn't give trastuzumab in everybody post protocol. And that gentleman was Tito Foho. And Tito Fojo's point was this when you have 30% of people in whom you're not giving any more trastuzumab, pertuzumab, merely by improving PFS, gets you more trastuzumab. And you're saying, what? What does that mean? He's saying, let's think about what's going on here. We give drugs until people progress. Principle one. Principle two, pertuzumab is lengthening the time until people progress. Principle three, there are some people in whom once they progress, they're not getting the standard of care therapy, which is more trastuzumab. Principle four, but until you progress, you're guaranteed to get trastuzumab. Principle five, since pertuzumab is delaying the time until people progress, people are getting trastuzumab for longer than in the control arm. If there was a third control arm of the study and and it was just this, we're going to delay giving the scans to the doctor for five months or six months or eight months or whatever the PFS difference was. We're going to delay the scan result to the doctor by eight months. You'll be giving trastuzumab for eight additional months in everybody because that's a protocol specified drug. So Tito's argument was that pertuzumab, that arm of Cleopatra, is getting more trastuzumab simply because pertuzumab is delaying progression. So the 16 months of OS benefit you're claiming as a result of pertuzumab, part of that might be due to the fact it's getting you more trastuzumab. How much of that 16 months is the pertuzumab? How much of that 16 months is the fact that more people got trastuzumab in a setting where 30% of people never got trastuzumab? It's a nuanced, complicated, extremely clever argument that was, of course, lost on the audience and they voted to approve Patsy Arn. It's a disaster because then three years later, then, of course, um, with time, the confirmatory study shows some sliver of benefit that apparently was good enough for the FDA to convert to regular approval. But uh, the whole story is a regulatory nightmare. And if you want to read about that, you can read the paper by Ja and I, which is entitled The U.S. Food and Drug Administration's use of pathologic complete response as regulatory endpoint, did it pay off, question mark, in the Journal of Cancer Policy, which came out in the June 2018 issue for the full history of perjeta or pertuzumab. So back to Dr. Prowl's quote. Dr. Prowl writes, is it true that NICE and NHSE don't cover trastuzumab as third line plus therapy? Uh, for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. Why on earth not? Tagging my regulatory colleagues across the water at EMA, who, of course, can't do anything about it because it's beyond their control. Um, And Tim Gilligan says, well, probably not cost-effective. That's probably why. That's probably why. Uh, And then I say, also interesting, because in Cleopatra, post-protocol trastuzumab was not up to US standards, and FDA had no problem with that. And then Dr. Prowl writes, going to go out on a limb here and say the FDA made the right decision to approve pertuzumab based on a 16-month improvement in median OS despite allowing crossover, tweeting as a private citizen, to which kind of misses the point. Alex Mentor writes, I agree with the approval, but isn't it worth scrutinizing outcomes when the OS improvement is more than double the improvement in PFS? If anything, it supports the importance of ladderline line trastuzumab. They may have not delivered in other countries. And then I write, that's exactly the point, yes. How can the UK's decision be unconscionable when the control arm of a study FDA allowed to proceed had the same omission? The 16 months would be smaller with better post-protocol care. I agree it should be approved, but how can you reconcile faulting the UK while not demanding better post-protocol care where FDA can enforce standards? Post-protocol care was not 100%. it was about 68%. See, so that is what I think is the interesting nugget here which is that This is just picking on Dr. Prowl, but it's true, I'm sure, of everyone at the agency. People at the FDA understand what is best available U.S. therapy. They know what the care we're getting in the U.S. is. They know trastuzumab and subsequent lines of therapy is what anyone would do in anyone's doctor's office at the time the study is run. They know that. They know that so much that when they hear that across the pond they're not doing that for good reasons, they still say, why on earth not? Till they know that it is wrong not to do it, i.e., It is wrong if you had infinite resources not to give this, which unfortunately is the state of the U.S. where we are acting as if we have infinite resources. They know that this is not up to our standard. And yet, at the same time, when they're getting drug approval applications... And the people in the trial are doing the exact thing they're critical of across the pond. They are not enforcing it. They're not pointing it out. They're not saying that's wrong. They're not saying don't go to countries that don't have post-protocol care like the U.S. They're not saying throw out that data. Let's do a sensitivity analysis just in people who had access to trastuzumab and all lines of therapy. They're not doing any of that. They're saying that's acceptable. It's acceptable to go to resource-starved parts of the world, typically low- and middle-income countries, and get your CRO, to run a clinical trial where post-protocol care does not resemble the U.S., by which the result is not directly applicable to the U.S., because we do not know that in the U.S. setting it would improve 16 months. And in fact, as Tito points out, it's probably gonna be smaller because giving you the P that prolonged your PFS actually bought you more T. It's a very nuanced and clever argument that's featured in a tiny section of a broader uh, argument in the book Malignant, which is coming to bookstores near you, April 2020. Malignant, how bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. Use the code HTWN to save 30% at press.jhu.edu. Chris Booth writes, Malignant, an insightful, well-written, and important book. Prasad has a masterful understanding of the issues he presents, weaving them into a compelling story. Thank you for that, Chris. I appreciate that. Uh, Should I make the check out to you in US dollars or Canadian dollars? Amit Sarpatori from the Harvard Medical School writes, Prasad outlines a plan that will educate consumers about how we ended up in our current predicament and explain what we can do to extricate ourselves from it. I highly recommend this book to patients, patient advocates, and all physicians, not just oncologists. Thank you, Amit. That's very kind of you. David Steensma writes about malignant. Oncology drug development is full of hype and spin, which raises false hopes, confuses patients, and wastes money. Prasad incisively dissects crummy evidence and systematic abuses, including the pernicious effects of financial conflicts and academic self-promotion, and proposes sensible steps to improve development of new therapies for cancer. Thank you, David. That was that's very kind. Now, I, it's a, that's a bit of shameless self-promotion, but it only came into my mind because I do kind of unpack a lot of this thinking on pertuzumab and some some other related issues it gets into. But the point for this podcast is Dr. Prowell's tweet, which is, People at the FDA understand that based on U.S. standards, we would give a drug post-protocol. And yet, they approve drugs in trials where they did not do that, while simultaneously faulting other nations for not doing that. That is untenable. It is always wrong to ask somebody why they do not clean their kitchen when your kitchen is dirty. That is the crux of the issue. When you have control and power to make a change that you know you ought to make, you can't fault someone else for not making that change. You have to ask yourself why you haven't made that change. And I think what it reveals it betrays is the deep hypocrisy of the FDA, which is that many, many, many clinical trials meant to guide care in the United States do not reflect what we're doing in the United States. That is a huge problem because two things can be true. Trastuzumab can be cost ineffective in the third line, but the addition of pertuzumab to trastuzumab in the United States can also have an effect size much smaller than the effect size observed in Cleopatra. Two things can both be true. Uh, UK can be right not to cover it, but in the US, once we've already decided we're gonna be practicing this way, we're wrong not to incorporate that in our clinical trials because we want data that's relevant to how we're practicing. Now let's go take the UK example. Okay, so let's say Cleopatra applies to the UK. Well, the UK has already decided trastuzumab is not cost-effective in the third plus line, and so therefore Cleopatra mirrors the UK. Although it's probably a little bit more draconian than the UK, because in Cleopatra, thirty percent of people did not get it at all, even in the second line. Uh, so let's put let's put a grain let's put an asterisk there. But let's say you want to say it applies to the UK. Well, then you'd ask is pertuzumab cost-effective, uh, maybe in a UK setting? And the answer would be no, because we have a cost-effectiveness analysis of pertuzumab in Cleopatra that is like four hundred thousand dollars in change dollar per quali, which would not be. cost Effective in the UK either. And so the power calculation would make no sense for the UK because they're looking for a, a sliver of benefit that will not be big enough uh, to justify use in the UK based on how they decided to price the drug. Um, so uh, the trial is applicable to neither nation. It's not a n- trial that will help the UK because the drug is priced horrendously. And it's not a trial that helps the US because we're not getting post protocol care to our standard. It's a trial that allows a company to bring a drug to the market that helps neither nation answer questions relevant to that nation and where regulators in the U.S. understand that they're not doing something they ought to be doing based on our standards in the U.S. And that's a puzzle that you're going to learn more about in Malignant. But that's a puzzle that I'm not going to beat you over the head with that again. Okay, the third thing. The third thing on this podcast is a listener email from Harry Hong. Dear Vinay, Thank you so much for doing your podcast. I love the rigor that you bring to your analysis. Well, Harry, are you a patron background? I don't think you are, Harry. don't think you are. No, just kidding. kidding. Um, I'm a practicing respirologist and unfortunately don't have much of a mathematical statistical background. That's okay, Harry. Um, I'm hoping that you could explain the limitation of Kaplan-Meier survival curves from the standpoint of trial reporting. I worry that with a large number of dropouts and censored patients in trials, the data itself will be less reliable, and I don't have the knowledge base to determine if the reported significance in a study is valid when large numbers of patients are censored, especially in the proportion to the patients with the event of interest. Is there standard methodology to account or assess for censored data in trials? Well, Harry is asking a great question. What do you need to know about the Kaplan-Meier survival analysis? A Kaplan-Meier survival analysis is a wonderful method of maximally harvesting information for a cohort of people that have enrolled recently, but not in the distant past, but in the recent past, in whom you have followed for an outcome that only happens over time. So what do I mean? Let's say in 2015, I opened a clinical study. I'm not going to get 100 people in my clinical study on day one. I'm going to have people trickle in, some people January 2015, some people in May, some people in November, some people December, we're in 2016, some people enroll, some people enroll, some people enroll, people enrolling at all different times. And I can enroll from 2015 to 2017, and there are going to be some people who enroll in 15, 16, and 17, and they might be a third, a third, a third. Very often, they might be... 15% 15% and then 40%, 40%, you know, something like that. Actually, your enrollment kind of picks up, you know, as you kind of gut your apparatus together. But, you know, they're not going to be equally distributed. They're not going to all come in the beginning. And then let's say by 2018, you want to know, well, you know, how are people doing in the treatment arm versus control arm? Well, some people you followed for three years, the ones who enrolled in January 2015, but some people you've only followed for one year. Um, and you follow people for all different amounts of time. The Kaplan-Meier method is a method that maximally harvests the information. They're saying, let's just take everyone we followed for the first month, who have month of follow-up, of all the people we followed in the first month, what fraction of people who were followed from zero to one are alive at month one? Okay, 90%, let's say. Now let's take all the people we followed from month one to two. Of the 90% of people who would be alive in month one, what percent of those people are still alive at month two? And let's say we find out that 90% of people who survived the first month survived the second month. So then you say, well, what's the survival at the end of month two for the total amount? And it's not 80%. It's actually 0.9 times 0.9 or 81%. It's 90% of 90%. So 81% of the cumulative 100% that started out. And you do that at every time interval. And you can see at once, let's say the endpoint is death. There's only two reasons why you would censor individuals. One that an individual enrolled in the study so few months that they don't contribute to months, say, four to five or five to six, uh, or that you lost an individual to follow up. Well, the good news is that with an outcome like death, which can be ascertained even at a distance, for instance, even if I um, lost a patient to follow up, I can still figure out from death certificates, social security records, or calling the family when the patient died, um, lost to follow up is rare for an outcome like death. Um, instead, the majority of censoring is due to the fact that people have enrolled very recently in your study. Uh, that censoring is thought to be uninformative censoring. The Kaplan-Meier method, of course, is based on the assumption that the people who are censored are no healthier, wealthier, or wise than the people in whom you have data. And and if the only reason you're being censored is the month you enrolled in the study, that's probably a fair assumption because there's probably not anything different between a metastatic cancer patient who presented in January 2015 enrolled in my study and a patient with metastatic cancer who presented in uh, November of 2016 enrolled in my study. Um, I wouldn't think off the bat that one group would be more likely to uh, be of different racial demographics or different socioeconomic status. The month in which they presented probably had nothing to do with that. It's probably balanced across all time. So that's the assumption of the Kaplan-Meier method. At every time interval between month, let's just say month four and five or five and six, that looking at the information of what percent of people experience the event of interest in that time interval among those in whom you have that information is a reasonable surrogate for the rate at which that event would have occurred in all people were you to know it in the distant future when you have the luxury of knowing what happened to everyone at all time, when you became God. And that is a fair assumption when there's no good reason why the, that censoring would have anything to do with outcomes. And that's almost always the case when the endpoint is overall survival. So to Harry's point, um, you know, one of the things you might worry about, of course, with an overall survival is if uh, it's a very early look at the data and just a very few number of events are driving the difference, and there's lots of early censoring, um, and people might call such a survival analysis uh, an immature survival analysis, um, so that a difference you see might likely be spurious. Um Uh, But there are statistical ways to account for that. For instance, um, such an analysis uh, might not cross the O'Brien-Fleming threshold for significance because when we have a very, very early look at the data, we often demand a much more stringent level of significance before declaring that that is a convincing effect and halting the study. So uh, you know there's statistical ways to handle very, very early looks at survival data. But I don't think that really gets at your full question because I think overall survival is uh, not, of course, the most common endpoint in oncology clinical trials, that's progression-free survival. And when you get to progression-free survival, you start to get into some interesting things with censoring. So let me try to unpack this a little bit. So of course, um, patients can be censored if they are lost to follow-up, or if if they just enrolled on the study a few months ago when the endpoint is survival. And I told you there's reasons to think that lost to follow-up is very rare if overall survival is a primary endpoint. But let's say the endpoint is progression-free survival. Well, in order to ascertain progression-free survival, which is a composite primary endpoint between new lesions on scans, growth of existing lesions 20% from nadir, or death, um, you have to be able to assess number one and number two, new lesions on scans and growth. And to do that, you have to get CAT scans. So what happens to somebody who doesn't get CAT scans? Well, they might be censored. So there's a third reason you might censor somebody um, with a PFS endpoint, which is you are censoring somebody if you lost them to follow-up and you are not able to scan them. And you can't really call up a family or Social Security or figure out when somebody progressed on a scan because no one's scanning them in the community. You may not know when they progressed at all, and you may have to censor them. So you might have followed somebody for four months, found that they didn't progress, and then they got lost to follow-up in month five, and you really have to censor that patient because you don't know when they progressed. You don't know when they experience the event of interest and you can't find it out through public records or calling people the way you could with overall survival. So now we have, in addition to late, you know, enrolling recently on the study, um, loss to follow-up becomes, I think, a bigger problem with an endpoint like progression-free survival. There can be more censoring. And in fact, often there's tremendous censoring early in Kaplan-Meier curves for an endpoint like PFS, which requires an active ascertainment. What does this mean for clinical trials? Well, point two, Why are people lost to follow-up? Well, with progression-free survival, one of the reasons why people might be lost to follow-up is if the medicine they're taking is really, really awful. If you randomize somebody to some toxic marginal cancer drug and they start feeling super horrible and they've had to come a long way to see you and they decide to throw out the pill, uh, that person might be more likely than the average Joe um, who's doing well on the pill to come back for follow-up visits and they might say, you know what, I don't feel great and I don't want to keep getting scanned and whatever sorry, doc, that doc wanted me to get all my scans, that doc should have prescribed me a medicine that's better than garbage, which is how this medicine makes me feel. And that's a very reasonable thing for a patient to say. The other thing that might be true about that patient is the kind of person that takes that pill and feels lousy might disproportionately be the kind of person whose tumor is growing more rapidly. It might be the person with less physiologic reserve. So what am I inserting here? I'm giving you a couple reasons to fear that, The censoring that's occurring here, loss to follow-up, is actually conditional on how someone's cancer biology is or their clinical state. And the reason I'm doing that is because I'm trying to undermine in your mind the idea that this is uninformative censoring. This might be informative censoring, i.e. there's something about the people in whom we're censoring that is different then the people in whom they're, who are returning to our clinics, they might be informative. It might actually be information. And we might be censoring the worst actors, people who are the sickest, okay? So to Harry's point, when you have a lot of censoring in a Kaplan-Meier curve and it's something that you have to come into the office to ascertain, and if you felt lousy, you might be less likely to come to the office, Yeah, in those cases, yeah, you might be like, what's going on here? There's a a problem here. Maybe that information is different. Uh, The last thing to add is what if that censoring is differential, different between the two arms? So if you randomize to sugar pill, um, sugar pill might not unmask poor physiologic reserve. Sugar pill might not unmask uh, toxicity in people whose tumors are rapid growing because it's sugar pill after all. Uh, Let's talk about the differential censoring. Imagine a hypothetical randomized control trial where progression-free survival is the primary endpoint, and the intervention is a drug that doesn't help cancer. It's low dose of atropine. What? Atropine, a toxic drug when given for no good reason, uh, is tested against placebo. Why would you do that? Just, Just a thought experiment. Nobody would ever do that. Nobody would ever actually do this. Okay, nobody would ever actually do this. It's a thought experiment. The primary endpoint is PFS, You take people with metastatic cancer, you randomize them to a low dose of a poison or sugar pill. Well, people taking the sugar pill are going to take sugar pill and they're going to show up and there's going to be some loss to follow people who feel crummy. Um, And if the endpoints PFS, some people won't get scans, but, uh, and it probably will be some of the sicker people, but it's sugar pill. So, you know, it's to be expected and um, I don't think it's going to be super, but it's sugar pill. So the pill is not the, not driving you not to come. In the low-dose atropine arm, there's probably more people who are not going to be lost to follow-up. That's because you're giving them a low-dose of poison. And some people might be feeling crummy and lousy and sick. And those people actually might be more of the people who are older and frailer with lower physiologic reserve and you might have something called differential informative censoring, that there's a difference between the two arms and how many people are censored. Atropine is resulting in more people being lost to follow-up, which is probably what I would expect to happen. And the people being lost to follow-up, it's informative. In both arms, people being lost to follow-up are the frailer group. But in one arm, not only are they frail, but they're getting a push in the back because you're pushing them in the back by giving them this toxic pill. And what you might have in a situation where atropine is tested against placebo is you might have a PFS benefit just by censoring. Because in the atropine arm of 100 people, 60% are censored and the 40% that remains are the cream of the crop and their PFS is eight months. In the placebo arm, 50% of people are censored um, and 50% of people show up but the 50% of people that show up includes 10% of the people who would have been tipped over with atropine. And they're, they drag the PFS down to seven months because they have more aggressive biology. So you might theoretically have a clinical trial with a seven and eight month difference between atropine and placebo, no OS difference. And the only reason it happened is because you are differentially censoring people informatively. So this is a long answer to Harry Hong's question, which is, What does censoring have to do with Kaplan-Meier curves? And I guess I want to say that, I guess the teaching points, if they were to be simple, are one, the Kaplan-Meier method is, is brilliant. It's a genius method because it maximally gets the information. For every single person, it's going to use the information for as ever long as you've had to monitor them until they experience the event of interest. And so if somebody's been monitored for 25 months, they're contributing their information for 25 months. And if someone's in the study for four months, they contribute only for four months, but you're not throwing any information away. It's genius. But it makes assumptions, and the assumption is there's no informative censoring, that the people who are being censored are no healthier, wealthier, or wise than the people who move you have data. The guy you followed from four months and the gal you followed for 27 months are randomly distributed. Um, There's no reason why, because they enrolled at different points in the study, and there's no other reason why um, one would have been followed for longer but that and that assumption is probably true if the endpoint is overall survival and you can ascertain it at a distance but that assumption might be increasingly questioned if the endpoint is something that includes something that requires somebody to show up it, because showing up requires showing up and you can't ascertain that at a distance and showing up requires a whole bunch of things like feeling good and caring enough to show up and that might be thwarted by your disease state or what a drug makes you feel And so if the endpoint is something other than overall survival, many of these assumptions might be questionable or dubious, and thus you might end up in situations with informative censoring or differential censoring that violates the Kaplan-Meier assumption, and that makes Kaplan-Meier estimates, I think, unreliable or not credible. Anyway, this is a, a very technical and complex topic, which, of course, is also featured in Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer, but... Um, it is also something that I talk about in some papers, probably, and I'll give you I'll give you some examples. The paper I would recommend for you to learn more here is by Usama Bilal and I. Usama Bilal is now assistant professor of epidemiology at Drexel, and one of my favorite epidemiologists. Boy, is this guy smart! I mean, I trained in Johns Hopkins Epidemiology and I took um, the PhD courses with Usama, um, I believe in the first year when he was in his PhD program. And I will admit that epidemiology, when, especially when you get into DAGs and complex causal inference and the third part of the Miguel Hernan book, uh, it is not easy and I don't pretend I know it all and my head hurts a lot because I'm a dumb clinician, super dumb on retrospective causal inference. Um, I'm very dumb on that. Usama Bilal, genius guy genius. This guy knew everything. He knew all the answers, man. He knew everything. He understood everything very quickly. He could explain things well. I mean, he just blew me away and I just don't understand how he understood. I don't understand how he understood. I don't know how he made sense of these things so quickly and so astutely. And then not only that, of course, genuinely nice human being, super friendly, super helpful, great coder, Anyway, we worked together on this paper because, you know, when you meet somebody like this, these are the kind of people you got to, like, grab on by the by the lapels and be like, uh, you got to – these are the kinds of people you got to grab and you got to say, like, you know, I would love to work with you. You're a genius. You know, teach me things, okay? And so he taught me some things, which is, you know, I told him this crazy idea – no, we, so we were talking about this idea of like kaplan Meyer curves and what are the assumptions and, and what if those assumptions are thwarted and what if those were thwarted in a recent phase three trial called Bolero two, which I don't know that they were thwarted, but I feared that they were thwarted. What might that look like? And Usama was like, well, we can model that. Usama was like, one, we can take the curve from the paper and we can uh, digitalize it and we can recreate the Kaplan-Meier. He did that effortlessly. And then he could say, we could change the assumptions around the Kaplan-Meier method. We could say, what if every censored patient was more likely to experience the events of interest? And what if they were less likely to experience it and what if we took the extreme versions which was they experienced it immediately the censored people or they never experienced it at all and then he said let's construct three curves for both of these arms of the study one best case scenario one worst case scenario and one what actually happened and let's look at it for pfs and he did that for bolero and what he found was a couple things one it is clearly the case that there is differential censoring there's more censoring on the Everlimus arm than the control arm of placebo in bolero 2 What he also found was that if you made some informative assumptions about that censoring, you could get the curves to cross. So when Baselga and colleagues reported in the Annals of Oncology that in the Bolero 2 study, there was no survival benefit, one hypothesis is that the PFS benefit went away. But the other hypothesis is that there never was a PFS benefit. It was just due to artifact of censoring. And that provocative idea is what Usama Bilal and I flesh out in this paper. We don't know what's the truth. But we do think it's quite interesting and provocative. And if you want to learn about this topic, I think it's kind of a good jumping point and has a lot of references that you can peruse to learn more. So to Harry Hong, who I don't think is a Patreon backer, but who's still a good person for loving this podcast. I love the rigor you bring to analysis. Um, I want to know more about kaplan Meyer. I hope that was a little bit of a primer. Um, I probably, since I didn't plan to do this, I just did this off the cuff, um, Probably did a not a great job of explaining Kaplan-Meier because I'm trying to explain in words uh, a life table. Um, and I think the better way to do it is for you to go on Excel and make a Kaplan-Meier. I mean, imagine, you know, there's some data sets online you can look at, which is like building a Kaplan-Meier. But imagine 20, 25 people. Um, let's say you have this data on them. Um, and you want to construct a Kaplan-Meier curve and then actually construct it and calculate the percentages yourself and see how you calculate the first time interval, which is the easiest, but then the second time interval, the cumulative survival at the end of second time interval, and then the survival between in the third time interval, and then the cumulative survival at the end of the third time interval, and see how they it requires multiplying. Um, probability of surviving one time interval by the baseline probability of having survived all prior time intervals. Um, once you see that and get a sense of that, you start to see how the Kaplan-Meier method is made. Um, you also see the genius of it because you're seeing like, wow, every scrap of information is getting included in this, you know? And if there really was uninformative censoring, no reason why the person who enrolled in 2015 is different than the person who enrolled in 2017, this is the absolute best way to get all the information out of this chart. You see that instantly um, when you actually do it yourself in an Excel. And then the side note, of course, here is that this is also, you know, worth talking about with the fragility index. When people calculate fragility index for a time to event endpoint like kaplan meyer they're merely calculating at the end of the day um, the event rate, or the body count, number of people alive versus the number of people dead. And you see at once you're throwing away all this information about when those events occurred. And so, using the fragility index for a time to event endpoint uh, at the end of the study is the dumbest thing on earth. And it's so dumb. It's the only thing that's dumber than the fragility index itself, which is a, Very flawed measure, of course, because it's saying how many events need to change for this not to be significant, but that's entirely contingent on what you said the line for significance was. So we live in a world where we say P of 0.05 is significant, so of course there are going to be few events that will tip it past that line. But if we lived in a world where we said P of 0.0005 was significance, there will be few events that tip it on the other side of that P of 0.0005 line, but many, many events till it tips to the P of O5 line. So wherever you draw the line, there's only going to be a few events that tip past the line because we stop studies once they reach statistical persuasiveness. So, of course, it's true. It's a tautology. It's a, another way of stating the p-value you observed. Um, and anyways, a total waste of time. But the only thing the only thing on planet Earth that's worse than that is, of course, taking a time-to-event endpoint, throwing out all the information, and then calculating a fragility index, and then complaining that it's very, very small because it will be. Because you discarded all of the information that probably showed it was more persuasive uh, than what you have in your hand, which is just the body count at the end of the study. So that's a very dumb thing to do. I guess what I would say about the fragility index is just don't do it. Just don't do it, man. There are there are lots of things wrong with clinical trials. They're a disaster. You can listen to this podcast. I'll tell you why many are a disaster. That's not one of them. Um, and 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 um, and it's almost as if there were a politician who is odious, despicable, and terrible in many, 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 many ways. But the one thing people criticize this politician for, it's like the color of his shirt, you know? You're like, okay, well, you know, that's not the one thing that's wrong with him. Everything else is, but you know, whatever. We all don't like him, so let's just pile on. But I mean, I think that's what the fragility index is. It's criticizing the theoretical politician who is horrible in every dimension for the color of his shirt or tie. Uh, which is the only thing that the politician theoretically is not screwing up. That's what the fragility index is. Okay, on that positive note, let's turn to the fourth point. Okay, the last topic, the Krebs cycle. There's a tweet by Professor Randy King, who's a biochemist, I understand, that has 5,000 retweets on Twitter and 16,000 likes. It's a popular tweet. And that's a very impressive figure when you realize that what's going on in this tweet is this gentleman is defending the Krebs cycle, which is the whipping boy of all of medical education. There was a really nice Post by Ph.D. Diaries, it says the real Krebs cycle, and they have a cycle called learn the Krebs cycle, forget the Krebs cycle, and you cycle between the two, and that's the real Krebs cycle, and that is very true and humorous because we've had to memorize a Krebs cycle many times in our medical education. It is entirely useless for being a practicing clinician, and then we, of course, forget it, and then we have to memorize it again. Randy King. What possibly could Randy King say about this that would interest anybody 5,000 times? Well, the gentleman makes a good point, so here's what he says. As someone who teaches the Krebs cycle to our first-year medical students, I have necessarily become a Krebs apologist. The problem with typical teaching of the cycle is that the steps are emphasized over the context. Here's a simple way to think about it. The big-picture view of the Krebs cycle is that it allows cells to extract high-energy electrons, NADH and FADH, from acetate, or acetyl-CoA, releasing carbon dioxide. The high-energy electrons are used to generate ATP. And that's a fair point, yeah. So what this is about is how do you strip a high-energy electron from acetate and how do you put that on what you want to power cells, ATP, and in the process release carbon dioxide? Randy King. This is not easy to do. Acetate is a small molecule. It has just two carbons, and thus an enzyme that oxidizes this molecule doesn't have much to hang on to. And I guess that would be fair that the enzyme, the protein enzyme that grabs it would have to have a very... Mm, talented binding pocket and talented uh, mechanism to rip that uh, high-energy electron off, Randy King. However, cells have enzymes that can oxidize 3-carbon molecules, 4-carbons, four, four 5-carbons, and 6-carbons, which he says are pyruvate dehydrogenase, malate dehydrogenase, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, and isocitrate dehydrogenase. Okay, fair enough. But we don't have acetate dehydrogenase, since acetate is too small. Instead, we have the Krebs cycle, which is the logical equivalent of acetate dehydrogenase. Since the cell cannot directly oxidize a two-carbon acetate molecule, it sticks it onto a four-carbon molecule to make a six-carbon molecule, which can then be sequentially oxidized by enzymes listed that recognize the six, five, and four-carbon molecules. So the Krebs cycle is an amazing metabolic workaround for a chemical problem that is otherwise difficult to solve. At the end of the day, the net result is the oxidation of acetate to carbon dioxide, producing electrons that can be used to generate ATP. The key to appreciating biochemistry is seeing the simplicity in the complexity. And I guess I'd say that's a good tweet. Um, I guess I'd say, uh, why is it interesting? I guess I'd say it's, uh, sort of like, um, reminds me of the, uh, of the Die Hard movie, uh, where the guy is, has to get four gallons of water in a bucket and he only has a three gallon bucket and a five gallon bucket and he has to figure out how to, how to turn that into four gallons. That's the same kind of thing. We don't have a dehydrogenase for two carbon atoms, but we do for three, four, five, and six. And so we can create a cycle where we can add two to four to make six and then rip him off one at a time until we get back a product we can add the two back on Okay, fair enough, fine. The one thing I wish he would explain a little bit more in this tweet would be, if an enzyme cannot uh, rip the high-energy electron off two because it's too small, um, is it the case that there is no enzyme that can rip off a high energy electron off any two carbon atom in any life form? I mean, that's, I want to see like, is that actually a universal principle of biology? The next question I have is, is, how is the enzyme able to grab onto it to attach it to the four carbon? Is that, uh, biochemically, uh, it requires less energy or, or less quote unquote grip on that. You know, so, so my mind is running to all these questions that I don't have answered for me. In other words, I want to test how like robust this little theory is, but, but, but that's, that's besides the point. He's just distracted me. He's distracted me. Um, I want to say that what he's doing here is clever. I mean, he, he's nice and he's, he's clever and, and he's the kind of teacher that you would want. If you have to learn this, I mean, this is the kind of guy you want to teach you it. But I don't think he's really addressed the question of like, do you need to know it? Let me give you an analogy. We could go to a medical school class and people could say, like, why do ants – do anything for the queen ant. Like why do soldier ants do anything? Like they're willing to die by the millions for a queen, a relative, not themselves. And you don't see that kind of behavior in, you know, other types of life forms where where an, an insect would be able to die for thousands, tens of thousands to die to protect, you know, one, one relative. Why does that behavior exist? Of course, an evolutionary biologist like E.O. Wilson might be able to tell you a story about how ants have a haplodiploid um, uh, genome that uh, it's actually the queen who can reproduce, um, but not the average worker ants who don't have the full genome. And thus, the worker ant may be best conceptualized not as an individual uh, creature, but a part of a greater whole, which is the ant colony, where the queen is actually um, the Uh, the germline cells are sort of the cells of the the testes or ovary that reproduce, and and the worker ant is like the cell in your hand or in your nose uh, that is functioning to enable um, the well-functioning of your reproductive cells so that the reproductive cells can perpetuate uh, their DNA. And so thus the ant colony might be thought of as the organism and not the ant itself. So that's something that E.O. Wilson could tell you. And similarly, like Randy King's explanation, you know, when you hear that and put, of course, more eloquently than the way I put it, but You know, when you hear something like that, you say, wow, that's cool. That's like super cool. So I guess, yeah, that's makes sense. But then if your conclusion is, well, that's why we have every medical student memorize uh, ant uh, genetics. uh, Somebody might say, whoa, you lost me. Just like Randy King. Whoa, you lost me. Yes, you have more correctly and more articulately put something about biology. You did it in the case of the ants and you did it in case of the Krebs cycle. You've got me to see it differently than I saw it before. Yes. But you sure as hell haven't proven to me that you ought to be teaching this. That's what you have failed. You've missed the relevant question. The relevant question is, should you be teaching this? And the answer still is no. No, 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 you shouldn't. You shouldn't teach every medical student about the ants. And you shouldn't teach every medical student about the Krebs cycle. And you shouldn't teach every medical student about the stars in the sky. They're all cool, but they're not relevant to the actual job of seeing patients. That is what you don't understand. None of you people who defend this understand. I don't understand this at all. It's so simple to me that I'm constantly frustrated by this argument, which is you have people for such a tiny fraction of time. You have students for four years and Half that time, they're distracted, okay? I mean, we all know people are, not just students, everyone's distracted. You know, you have a tiny period of time to teach people things they actually need to know to take good care of patients. Why do I say good care of patients? That's the average destination. Medical education has to prepare people for the most common outcome after that education. Yes, you can go to law school and compete in the Olympics, but law school is not a training program for competing in the Olympics, okay, it's for law. So when you go to law school, you should come out with the idea that most people are gonna be lawyers. Is one person gonna be Barack Obama? Absolutely but it's not a training program for be president of the United States. Is one person gonna be a novelist? Absolutely, but it's not a training program to be a novelist. When you go to medical school, it's a training program to see patients. It's not a training program to run a lab. It's not a training program to run Novartis. It's not a training program to, uh, uh, to, uh, to pursue IDH inhibitors and leukemia. Do some people do that? Yeah. Of course, people take degrees and do all sorts of other things. But the degree has to teach you to do the main thing most people do with the degree. And this is not something that most people with the degree do. Okay, like most people don't need to know the Krebs cycle. The average practicing doctor doesn't need to know it. Now that I know this cool explanation of it, it will not help me one more day in my life. In the next 30 years, I'm an oncologist. It's not going to help me. It's a cool thing to know, just like the ant thing is cool. And just like some stuff about the stars is cool. When I see Neil deGrasse Tyson say it on the, on the television, you know, these are cool things. Uh, it's cool to know these things, but they're not relevant for my job, okay? This is still not relevant for my job. Now, somebody may say, well, somebody who has your job is using it. Yeah, exactly. But that's not everybody. Okay, well, then the next thing. It would be okay to teach little bits of esoterica, if only some people use it, if you were already doing a great job of teaching the core stuff. Like look, we're hitting the ball out of the park with this medical education. All of the doctors we train they are great, man. They know how to keep up with the literature. They know how to have empathy in patient discussions. They know how to understand statistics. They know 100% of the time you show them a bad New England Journal of Medicine study, they tell you, look, this crossover is inappropriate in the third line here. Come on, man. They all know how to do that expertly. They're, they're perfect. We're teaching them all the, tru- the tools they need to know. We're mastering that. And you know what? We got five minutes left in class. Let me teach you this cool thing about the Krebs cycle, students. okay. It would be one thing if that was the world but that is not the world. We are failing all the time to teach students the things they actually need to know to be a practicing doctor. They don't know sensitivity. They don't know specificity. They don't know positive predictive value. They don't know anything about screening. They are on Twitter. People who see take care of lung cancer patients for years, they don't know cause specific mortality. They don't know false positives. They don't understand how endpoints were adjudicated NLST, but they're saying everyone should get lung cancer screening. They don't know what they're talking about, but they think everyone should get lung cancer screening. They don't know basic statistics. They don't know Cox proportional hazard model. They don't know Kaplan-Meier curves. They don't even know what a p-value is. They can't explain it. They don't understand why it's threshold, they don't see why it's arbitrary, they think that one side is good, the other side is bad, they don't know what a surrogate endpoint is, they don't know what validation of surrogate endpoints entails. they don't know regression analysis, they don't know know all this basic stuff you need to interpret the deluge of information, you're getting marketed on a daily basis, but instead they're forced to memorize this goddamn pathway that no one except a few people needs to know, and then somebody comes along and says, I got a clever way for you to memorize this pathway, or at least think about what it's doing, isn't that cool? And he gets 5,000 retweets by people who still don't understand the main point which is that we are failing to teach people what they actually need to know we're teaching them a bunch of bullshit like this that's what it is and we can teach it to them in a more fun way with cool stuff you can get neil degrasse tyson to come to every medical school and kick it up a notch for astrophysics and we will all love it We'll love it because we're curious people. We love cool stuff. But we'll still be failing to teach people how to be a doctor in the real world. And that's the problem here. The Krebs cycle is not the problem because I didn't have a cool teacher who taught me this cool thing that this that Randy King has taught me, which I am appreciative of. The Krebs cycle is a problem because it can't be in the medical education. We are doing a lousy job of teaching what people need to know to be doctors in the 21st century in America in a deluge of marketing, bad statistics, bad trials, bad information, and and interpreting what actually helps their patients and what actually makes sense. We are doing a lousy job of that. We do not have one minute to spend teaching you things you don't need to know. We're not going to teach you. We cannot teach you to be a novelist. We cannot give every doctor an MBA. We can't teach you to be a biochemist. We can't teach you to be a pharmaceutical drug developer in medical school. You can learn those things if you want to do afterwards. We have to focus on teaching you to be a doctor. We have to do that. We're not doing as good a job as we could at doing that. We're not giving you the skills you need. So yeah, Randy King, it is good. Um, But I would rather have an equally charismatic professor go into class and teach people like why the Kaplan-Meier method, um, maximally harvest information, why that's relevant, um, what endpoints you can really trust and hang your hat on and what you can't, because that's something that every practicing doctor will, it's relevant for. Whether you go in allergy, immunology, uh, pancreatic surgery, uh, oncology, or cardiology, or radiology, that's something you need to know. Um, whether or not, how can you trust nutritional epidemiology studies, that's what you need to know. Um, Knowing that that human biology uh, cannot rip high-energy electrons off two carbon molecules but can for three, four, five, and six, ergo the cycle allows you to do this by adding it to a four carbon, taking it to a six, and then stripping from six down to four and recycling it, that's a c- cool factoid, just cool like my aunt factoid that the queen is the only s- – cell in the body that can reproduce. They're both cool factoids. They're both factoids that'll get 5,000 retweets on Twitter. If I had a string of like, you know, people say they they don't understand why ants sacrifice themselves for the queen. Here's why. You know, and I have this E.O. Wilson cool explanation, Uh, but neither of which should be in medical school. Uh, They both need to be kicked to that curb and anybody who makes a test in medical school um, that mandates the requirement of this, like the USMLE, Um, they're doing us a disservice, they're keeping us from teaching people what actually matters, um, thinking about how education has to apply to the majority of people who go forward, um, and, and that's the bottom line here. So is Randy King the kind of professor you would want? Yes, but should you take Randy King's class? No, that's the bottom line. And on that positive note, I'm back. You can hear it in my voice. I'm back on Plenary Session, and this is what you're going to get on this podcast. You're going to get my take on all of these sorts of issues and more. We have a lot coming for you in the new year, a lot of good stuff. And if you like this podcast, this is my annual NPR drive. This isn't like NPR. There's no one else out there who's going to sponsor this podcast, if not you. And if you don't sponsor it, then one day you're going to log on and you're not going to get it ever again because I have other things to do and I'm trying to run this on a shoestring budget and I have to think about some stuff coming up. So, sponsor this podcast. Send us your questions. I enjoy those and more questions to come. I still have to go through some of the Ash abstracts and some are terrible, and they require skills that doctors need to learn in medical school, which are not taught um, because we're too busy learning the Krebs cycle from professors not nearly as charismatic and smart as Randy King. And Randy King certainly took the Krebs cycle to the next level. Unfortunately, he still hasn't uh, proven that it's useful for the majority of doctors, and, and he'll be unable to do that for his entire career or life because it's not the case. So on that positive note, stay tuned for more Plenary Sessions. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.